and welcome back to Franklin Covey's On Leadership Podcast Series. My name is Scott Miller, and I serve as your weekly host and interviewer. You may know me, of course, also as the author of the book, Master Mentors, 30 Transformative Insights from Our Greatest Minds, where for the first year or two of this podcast, I, with the permission of 30 guests, wrote a book about their transformational insights, often something they may have shared even um, off camera that I thought was transformational could become something useful for all of those readers out there that also subscribe to the podcast. Pick up a copy of Master Mentors Volume 1, available now. And I'm honored to say that Master Mentors Volume 2 is finished, comes out from HarperCollins in October, features 30 new mentors with 30 new insights. And in fact, today's guest has already agreed to be featured in Volume 3 with celebrities and luminaries thought leaders like Mel Robbins and Robin Sharma and Emmanuel Acho. Emmanuel Acho, John Acuff is today's guest. He's the author of numerous New York Times, Wall Street Journal bestselling books. And today our topic is going to be about what has a cult following. It's called Soundtracks, The Surprising Solution to Overthinking. John Acuff, welcome to On Leadership. Thanks for having me today, Scott. I'm looking forward to this. John, I mentioned that you've got a bit of a cult following, and I think that's a compliment because it's a group of super passionate people, millions of people who read your books and host you for keynote speeches. You've got a great writing technique, a very unique writing style for your books. I have to tell you, your book, Finish, is one of my all-time favorites. I think it is one of the best career books ever written. Now, you've written books about, you know, uh, 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 career journeys and such, but this book, Finish, which, which isn't today's topic, but it really is a book that I want you to spend a minute or so on and talk about why are so many people passionate about Finish and why did you write it? Well, I wrote it because when I looked at my own life, I wasn't a good finisher. And so I had a personal, per- personal thing I wanted to fix. And then I looked at the need. So many people came up to me and said, John, you wrote a book called Start. I've never had a problem starting. How do I actually finish? And then I checked the marketplace. And if you go to Amazon and type in finish, the only thing that comes up is dishwasher detergent. We as a culture over-celebrate the beginning and we ignore the middle and the finish. And so I thought 92% of all New Year's resolutions fail, according to the University of Scranton. What if I could figure out how to transform from being a chronic starter into a consistent finisher? And that's what I think people were excited about. In fact, John, I used to have a weekly uh, uh, video series on my social media called Mess with the Millers, kind of like my wife and our three sons and the things that were messy in our lives in the hopes to inspire others to own their mess and, you know, and allow others to own theirs. And in the book Finish, you shared a great example of how many unfinished uh, chapsticks you had in your house. And so I went around our entire home, four floors in Salt Lake City. I grabbed, I think I found 48 chapsticks of various flavors and forms, put them in a mug and shared it on my video because it's so true. The chapstick in our lives is a great metaphor for really our reputations, right? Do you make and keep commitments, not just to yourself, but to your leaders, your teams, your families as well? I think Finish is a fantastic career guide to help people understand the gravity of not just starting, talking about things you're going to do, but showing what you have done. It's a gift to everybody who wants to pick up a copy. Today, however, John, our topic is gonna to be about another book that I think is one of your favorite, you're very passionate about. In fact, I'm not mistaken, you might be even writing a, a second version of it. We'll talk about that in a moment. The book is called Soundtracks. Love the cover, by the way. Awesome. The Surprising Solution to Overthinking. You actually share a fairly vulnerable, tender story in the beginning around your start in life and what was preventing you from 
really uh, leveraging on your passions, your skills, your, 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 your now legacy. Take as much time as you like. Reorient yourself to our listeners and our viewers who may be the last people that aren't part of your cult following. Talk about your journey and how that kind of culminated into writing the book Soundtracks. Yeah, so when people ask me who I write for, I often say I write for the me I used to be. Yeah. And that's not a unique answer to me. You'll, you'll ask teachers that question and they'll say, oh, I teach for the me I used to be. I was 13 and my parents went through a divorce and no other teacher recognized it. My grades plummeted, my friend group changed and nobody showed up. So I think about me, I'm in Atlanta, I'm at a, a job that I don't love. I feel stuck. I'm trying to motivate myself to go inside a building and do something. And I think, okay, I've plateaued already in my early 30s. Where do I go from here? And just this general sense of stuckness. And in that moment, I started the blog and started to say, okay, can I share ideas with people? And I had this singular thought of, I think I can be an author. I think I can be a public speaker. I had no evidence of that. There was nothing in my past that would prove that true. I just had this singular thought. And I started to really investigate, okay, what happens when you feed your thoughts? What happens when you lead into your thoughts? And over the next 13 years, I really learned that your thoughts turn into your actions and turn into your results. It's so easy as a leader to go, we got to overfocus on our results, overfocus on our results, and never change the underlying thoughts that are changing everything. And so once I figured that out, I realized, wait, I can build this. I can do something. It's going to take me longer than I want. That's the answer. Whenever somebody says, how long does my dream take? I say, I know exactly how long, longer than you want. I've never met somebody that said, yeah, the whole thing took like an hour. I thought it was going to take a year, but it was really fast, almost too much money at once. And so I really started over the next 13 years to lean into that. And there are ups and downs and twists and turns. But having that thought, even when I'd fail at something, I'd go, well, I'm still going to believe that. I'm still going to lean into that. I'm still going to turn that into an action. And that's what allowed me to, I didn't write a book the first 34 years of my life. I'm working on my ninth in the last 12 years. And that started with having a thought and, and turning it into action and then getting to benefit from the results. John, I mentioned the opening of your book is quite vulnerable, how you shared a very relatable series of stories of how overthinking, if you will, really prevented you from accomplishing some of your goals. Why do you think, what does the science show, if you will, around why we tend to overthink about negative thoughts, obstacles versus positive, forward-moving, accomplishing things that we're actually doing? Why do we tend to fixate, as humans, overthinking about the negative? Yeah, so it's called the negativity bias is how your brain works. And it's a protection mechanism. Um, even babies, if you, if you look at the research, even babies will look faster at a photo of a snake than a photo of a frog. Because even as a child, you can tell, okay, this is dangerous. I need to look at this. I need to focus on this. So your brain is trying to help you. But when that gets overused, it turns into a negativity bias. Um, an example of that would be, we don't have an opposite for the word trauma in the English language. We don't have a word that means an overwhelming joy that hits you in the grocery store 10 years later as you think about something. Trauma does that, Negative negativity does that. And so your brain is kind of always on the look for that unless you tell it what to look at, unless you say, hey, here's what we're going to focus on. You never have to go look for negative thoughts. I always say like fear comes free, hope takes work. Like you never have to figure out, okay, I'm gonna think about something negative today. Again, you'll be at the grocery store, you'll be pumping gas and something dumb you said a month ago will pop into your head. With hope, with positivity, that takes work, that takes intentionality. And most of us were just never taught how to think. 
a lot of people think their thoughts are just show up on their own. Thoughts are just something that happens to me. Most people think they have a thought. They don't hone a thought. But when you hone your thoughts ahead of time and choose them, it changes your actions and that changes your day. So your brain, it starts from a good place, but over time it tends to get stuck in a neg negative spiral unless you do something about it. Well said, John. I think the biggest gift you gave to me in this book was the realization of how tormented we are by what you might call, you know, dumb things people said to us or negative things people have said about us. I can, retell, I can tell you what conference room I was in 26 years ago when an associate once said to me, people like you shouldn't work here. And she was, you know, diminishing me. I can yeah. tell you where I was a week ago when a colleague said to me in a moment of jest, but probably truth, you know, Scott, you're quite arrogant. I can tell you the five or 10 things that are viscerally negative about me. I can't tell you where I was, who said, yeah. the likely thousands of positive things yeah. said about me. Deconstruct that because I think you give us all a gift when you allow us to realize that kind of naturally we anchor on the negative, but we don't on the positive. Yeah, I call that the pocket jury. It's like this tiny pocket jury of people that have been negative to you. And it's gathered evidence for years and years and years. And unfortunately, we're not taught to do the reverse, to say, okay, what are the positive things? What are the things that I need to focus on? What are the things that I need to remember that are positive, that are encouraging? How do I lean into those? Um, how do I make sure that, that I anchor those in my life? I, I'm the same way. I can think about negative book reviews. I can think about you know somebody who said, I got fired from a job once and they said, you shouldn't be a writer. And that you know, certainly leaves a mark. And so for me, I think you just have to do the reverse. You have to go on a hunt for the other stuff to say, okay, what's, what's true about me? What's positive about me? Where could, I, where could I lean into this? Where could I focus on this? Where could I collect this? And what's unfortunate, Scott, is we tend to not have space where we can celebrate the things that go well. Take the internet, for instance. The internet loves misery and will welcome it. So when you share something terrible, people commiserate. But when you share something positive that happened, people say that's a humble brag. You're, you're bragging, you shouldn't do that. So we don't have space. Just the other day, a friend said to me, he texted me and said, hey, I gotta tell you something. I thought it was gonna be something terrible. And he said, um, I was part of a Grammy award winning album. And I was like, that's amazing. Look, something you did led to a Grammy, but we don't have a vehicle to share that yeah. with each other. Yeah. So not only are we not getting it from each other, the things that go well in our life, we go, well, don't brag about it. Don't celebrate it too loud. Don't get cocky. Don't get selfish. Don't get arrogant, whatever. And then, then we lose it. And we only remember the negative things. We forget the good things. And it creates this, again, that negative spiral. John, let's get personal. If I'm not mistaken, you and your wife are parents to two teenage daughters. Is that right? Yes. Which means, yes, you, don't got, have a, uh, which means you don't have a son. So how do no. you explain that crazy collection of cars behind you? You're not in your son's bedroom. What's going on back there? Yeah, so uh, those are Lego cars. Um, I, it's my dorkiest hobby, probably of many dorky things I do. Um, I'm a goal nerd. That's one of my dorkiest hobbies. But I realized a few years ago that my life doesn't have instructions. Very few things I do in life have instructions. How do you be a speaker? How do you be an author? How do you be a consultant? But when I have a huge 4,000-piece Porsche 911 from Lego, there's a huge set of instructions. So going through those step by step by step is 
is meditative for me. Some people like knitting, some people like gardening. For me, that's what I like to do. And so that became part of my kind of thinking process. Um, and what's funny about that is now when I go speak at events, like I did a, an event for Range Rover and they saw the Defender on the shelf and like, wait a second, this is going to be amazing. You already. And so it's become, and now clients, when I go speak, will send me Lego sets. So it's become part of like a fun part of my brand in a way. So if I announce that I like drinking champagne, which creates the need for no instructions, guests might send me <laughs> yeah. bottles of champagne. I, I like it. I yeah, so that's, it. you just put it out in the universe, stuff shows there. up. Stuff shows up. Which is why I have like 6,000 pairs of cufflinks because everybody buys me a pair. John, Are I love this Are you a cufflink quote. guy? That's your jam? Uh, you know, can I tell you? From seventh grade, I've worn a fringe cuff shirt every Monday through Friday, every day from seventh grade. I was, was kind of Alex P. Keaton before there was Alex that P. Keaton. That is amazing. I've dated myself. John, you say amongst many wise things in this book, the overthinking loop. Overthinking leads to a lack of action and the lack of action leads to more overthinking. Yeah. As everybody is listening and watching this, literally millions around the world, I want you to speak to the person right now who can find themselves in this overthinking loop. You're not a psychiatrist. You're not, you're not a psychologist. You're not a brain expert. You're a, you're a consultant and a very famous author who's you know, tapped into a lot of the challenges we have as humans. What practical advice can you give us to sort of break this overthinking loop, recognizing that sometimes it's good, right? Perhaps it makes us more deliberate on our impulsivity. Perhaps it helps us to gauge someone's character maybe more than um, we might have otherwise. Yeah, so let, right me, let me give you the difference between overthinking and say being prepared. Like, cause what you just described is being prepared, being detailed, being able to read the room. Those are all good things. The difference is preparedness leads to action. Overthinking leads to more overthinking. When you're prepared, when you're detailed, when you read the room, when you're into logistics, there's a trail of the projects you finished. How do we start this, this session today, you said, hey, here's, you know, here's the first book. Here's the second book. John's going to be on the cover of the third book. So honored, by the way. And you just keep you. You've produced those. If you started this by going, hey, everybody, I'm in year nine of working on this book. And it's going to be amazing when I do it. I mean, Scott, one of the largest goals in America, 81 percent of Americans say they want to write a book, according to The New York Times. Every year, less than one percent do. Why? Because they sit down and they say, OK, I'm going to write a book. And then they add all these extra thoughts. They go, people say to me all the time, got to write a book. So, you know, like my dad knows my career choices are the right thing. Whoa, we've added so much pressure to something that's already challenging. So many extra thoughts. No wonder you're having a hard time writing the book. I always tell people, don't write a book, write a hundred words, write a chapter. If yeah. you haven't progressed on the thing and you're overthinking, overthinking it, let's start with a hundred words. Today, somebody told me, you know, I'm working on my first book. I, I'm wondering about the sequel. And I was like, whoa, 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 write the first one. Don't worry about the third or the fourth or the fifth because you might never finish the first because you'll overthink the whole thing. So that's what I mean when people get stuck in a loop is that they go, okay, I've, I've got to really figure this out. Or they say, I've got to know exactly where it's going before I start. We've misinterpreted things like Simon Sinek's amazing start with why. That book doesn't tell you you can't start until you perfectly know your why. Yeah. But people have misinterpreted it to, unless I have my true north, unless I have my purpose forever, I can't start. That's not what it says, but that's what we believe. And so we sit down and go, until I know exactly what I want to do with my life plan, I can't lose two pounds. Like until I really know. And that is where people get stuck. 
John, my agent has just texted me that um, a week in the Acuff Mountain home would probably earn your photograph on the front cover of Master Mentors, Volume 3, just saying. Um, I just I just hope that you guys can't edit that fast enough because I looped it in with a bunch of other things you I know, said. Listen, listen, I, I, I'm, I'm quick on the uptake, sir. Actually, I'm honored that we're going to feature you as one of the 30 mentors in the third volume. I'm going to put you right in the middle just after Mel Robbins and right before probably Matthew McConaughey. So stand by on that. Oh, nice, uh, nice. John, right, what, you, right. what you are an expert on, I believe, is achieving dreams. Perhaps sometimes even achieving delayed dreams. What advice would you give someone right now that has a dream? And like you, perhaps you sat on it for seven years or eight years, whatever it was, and you made it, you moved outside your comfort zone. Today, what should people be doing to change their thinking, change their plan? You talked about it briefly around write the chapter, write this couple words. Motivate us. So I'll give you one quick exercise. If you want to figure out if you have a broken soundtrack, that's what I call a negative thought loop. Here's a really easy exercise. It takes 30 seconds. Write down a dream. Write down a goal. Write down a hope. It can be big, small. It can be, I want to start a podcast, want to lose 10 pounds, want to move to Colorado, want to move to Salt Lake, whatever. Write it down and then listen to your first thoughts. Listen to your reaction because every reaction is an education. Are your first thoughts, you should do that. You're perfect to do that. You're the right age to do that. Or are they negative? Or are they, who are you to do that? Smarter people have already done that. You're the wrong age to do that. That's what's funny about fear. Fear argues both sides of the coin. It'll tell you when you're young and you're in your 20s, who are you to do that? You don't have enough experience. You hit your late 30s and fear goes, you've missed your shot. It's yeah. too late. And you yeah. want to say to fear, when was I the right age? Is if fear would be like, there was 10 minutes when you were 31. It was a mm -hmm. Tuesday in October. Would have been amazing. So I would challenge you to identify some of those broken soundtracks so that you can retire them and start to take the next steps. But a big thing for me is to go, okay, what could I do this week? What could I do in the next week? I'm a big believer in easy goals right out of the gate because I want you to get a couple of wins under your belt and I want you to start to build some momentum. So what's an easy goal? Something that you could accomplish in the next one to seven days that might take 15 minutes of your time. We tend to go from nothing to all. Most people, my daughter said this about me. She said, dad, you only have two speeds. You're either OCD or no CD. And that's true of a lot of leaders where they're not doing anything and then they go, you know what, Scott, I'm going to do the Ironman in like a month. And you go, I don't, I don't know if that's going to be sustainable. Dude. You haven't run a mile in 10 years. Or they go, I'm going to write my book in three days. And you go, I don't, that sounds so good. Most goals, Scott, are optimistic lies. And what I like to do is help somebody go, take this wild hope. Take, like have a huge, crazy big dream. Let's marry it to the reality of your life so that it actually happens. I have met my more handsome twin brother in John Acuff. John, how do we know if a goal we have is truly worth pursuing, or it should just kind of be like a daydream, a passion project, any advice on the criteria of elevating something to action? Yeah, so you experiment. You don't, you're not marrying these goals, you're dating them. Like most people, if they approach goals as a marriage, you're gonna get stuck, you're gonna overthink it, you're gonna get paralyzed. You approach it as a date and you go, I'll go on a 30 day date with this. Like I'll date this for a little bit. Like I'll try to write this book. I'll, I'll try to start this podcast. I'll give this X amount of time. Like go date the goal. Don't, don't assume it's either I'm not doing it or I'm married for 10 years. Like that's not what we're talking about. What we're talking about is going, I will give this thing X amount of my time. Like, especially at the beginning, I want you to do it the cheapest way possible. Yeah. I don't want you to add money to it because there's so much baggage around money. And then PS, like spouses will support 
initial goal experience, uh, like experiments that aren't expensive. Like your spouse wants to see you win. What she or he doesn't want to see is you go, I got this crazy idea about ferrets. It's going to cost us like 20 grand. Kids aren't going to be able to go to college. It's the ninth crazy idea I've tried. Why don't you want to support my dream? They're much more likely for you to go, hey, I'm getting up at 5 a.m. for the next week because I want to work on this thing and I'm going to stop watching TV. Scott, the average American watches the equivalent of two hours of TV, like two months of TV a year, two months of TV. So like the bar to crush is so low. Like everyone listening, if you only watch one month of TV a year, you are killing it. So like when you plug into stuff you care about, it makes everything pale in comparison. You don't figure out how to not spend time on Instagram. You find something you love so much, it makes Instagram look pale. And that's what I like to help people figure out is, okay, I experimented with this thing. I fed it some hours. I fed it a little bit of money, not a lot of bit of money. Ooh, I can see a fire. Like I want to put some more fuel on that. That's when your whole, like your schedule will start to change and you're excited to throw more hours at it. John, did you bail on the ferrets early on or did it take a few months for you to realize it wasn't the right idea? Supply chain, dude, supply chain. You tell me how easy it is to get a ferret right now. <laughs> I don't know. Replacing your soundtracks is about identifying what soundtracks you've been listening to and then owning the responsibility of changing them. Honestly, John, I mean, I'm 54 years old, been around the block a few times, metaphorically. And I did, and I read your book, I thought, so what soundtracks have I been playing over and over again? I have a pretty healthy sense of self-confidence. Sometimes it sure. borderlines on arrogance. I was told once yeah. a week ago by a friend of mine who's in the room right now, because I remember who it was, because it was negative. Yeah. How do yeah. we identify what those soundtracks are and how do we replace them? Well, the replace is the hard part because when I ask people, name the negative things you think about yourself, people can usually come up with those pretty quickly. If I then say, what are the thoughts you'd like to think about yourself? What's the music you'd like to listen to? What would the thoughts that are that would propel you blank face? So I always think an, a really easy exercise is to flip the negative to positive. So one of the examples I give in the book is that um, I realized I was the worst boss I ever worked for. I was just grinding constantly. My and this is one I'm. This is still in progress. Like, like two weeks ago, my wife said, "Hey, um." you had a meeting at 2 p.m. on a Friday and it was good Friday. And I was like, I, I had to take that meeting. She was like, you're the CEO. You didn't like you, you set that up. And I was like, that's a good point. That's a good point. So like I would take that one and go, okay, I'm the worst boss and I need to work this way. And I got to grind constantly. And I would flip that and go, okay, what's the reverse of that? What would it look like for me to be the best boss? How would the best boss behave? How would the best boss talk to me? I mean, that was one of the surprises in writing the book is that I was surprised how much of the punctuation in my own head when I was talking to myself ended with, you idiot. Like, you could have done this better, you idiot. You should have done this faster, you idiot. And so that's where you sit down and go, okay, this is negative. What's the reverse look like? Versus like sitting down with a blank piece of paper and trying to dream about the thoughts you want. That's so overwhelming to me. It's so much easier to go, this is what I've been telling myself. The reverse of it is this. What would it look like to believe that? John, I had the privilege recently of being a guest on your excellent, although slightly smaller podcast than mine. And I believe- oh, come on, I, come on. I said slightly. I believe You didn't that, even go with the ferret joke. I did a ferret supply chain joke. You acted like you get 50 of those a week. That was so niche. Oh my gosh. In that extraordinary podcast that you host, I believe you mentioned that you were contemplating writing a version of soundtracks for maybe a younger audience. Is that still happening? 
Yeah. So I, I hosted you on my podcast. All it takes is a goal. A lot of great episodes, including yours. Um, and yes, the book comes out in September. I had so many parents. This is the first time it's ever happened. I've written seven books to this date. I've got two more coming out and parents said, Hey, is there a version for teenagers? If I could have learned how to change my thinking when I was a teenager, it would have changed everything. And it's true because teens don't have a lot of broken soundtracks to get rid of. They're 13, they're 14. They don't have 20 years of broken additional soundtracks. And so I didn't have a version at the time and I didn't want to write it myself because it would have sounded like an adult trying to appear young, like, hello, fellow youths. That's so lit. Didn't mean to be so savage. Oh, Drake's a rapper, not just a duck. Like it would have been terrible. So I had my two high school daughters um, write the book with me and it's called Your New Playlist and it comes out uh, in September. Uh, John, I don't know you extremely well despite our quick and envious rapport. Do you think the pandemic has changed you? I mean, obviously you're a speaker and some large portion of your family's income comes from you traveling physically the last decade to events and crushing it as a keynote speaker. Uh, how has that changed your parenting style, your role as a spouse, as a provider, as a leader, as a person? How are you different now as a result of the pandemic? Well, I think I value community more. Um, I think isolation taught me how much I need community. I think we're, we're built for it. Um, and, you know, I look at it and say, okay, it only takes one person to drive a Honda Civic down a highway. It takes 400 to 1200 people to manage a Formula One car. And I want to be Formula One. Like, I don't want to be one person driving a Honda Civic down the highway. Like, I want to be at a level where it takes a big community to do big, fun things that impact the world and serve a lot of people. So I think it really showed me that I needed to value community and make time for it. Um, and, it and it just gave us a chance to all connect um, as a family. It also taught me that I need, I love accomplishment. It's one of the things that motivates me. So when a bunch of uh, accomplishments that are set up get postponed or suspended, I need to fill those in with other things I'm excited about versus just be grumpy for like six months. Cause that's what, that was my initial reaction was like frustration. And then eventually I realized the pandemic wasn't gonna behave according to my schedule, which was very disappointing. Um, and I could do, you know, I could do one of two things. I could pout or I could plan. So that became mm. a soundtrack for me. Mm. Powder plan, powder mm -hmm. plan. Like, what are we doing? Like, mm -hmm. what are we doing? And so that's when I built my podcast um, out of that moment was going, okay, I'm not able to connect with clients tonight right now. What are the tools I have access to? Um, let me, you know, let me lean into those and create those. So a lot of creativity. I, I always say that a crisis is an invitation to innovation you wouldn't have taken otherwise. I wouldn't have launched a podcast. I wouldn't do online courses. There's so many things I built in that moment that I wouldn't have done. And so now I look back on it and go, I'm grateful that I was able to build some new things that a year later, two years later, are really starting to have a lot of fun. John, it's actually a perfect manifestation of this concept of sometimes a disappointment turns into an appointment. And you've done just that, right? You have decided because of the pandemic, your life like many's, many of ours was turned upside down, perhaps even more so than some because of the way your business worked and your live in-person speeches, a portion of your business and enterprise, you've re-disrupted, -inno re innovated yourself. Mm -hmm. yep. tell, me, uh, tell me the name again of, the, of the, the youth version, if you will, of Soundtracks. What's the title of it? Your New Playlist. Um, it's about helping students come up with their own playlist to listen to. And it's, it's really, really fun. And what I'm excited about, Scott, the opening story, um, my 16-year-old daughter got cut from the lacrosse team. 
and it was everything to her. Like wearing that jacket was everything. Like we spent three months running together to get her mile time down. Like, and she made the team. And then the next year she got a text message from her coach cutting her and super tough moment. And a week later she said, I want to put this story in the book because I think it'll help a bunch of other kids. And I was so proud of her for being brave because it's not easy to be a teenager. And so I, I asked the coach, can we put this story in? And he said, this, this book's going to help my, you know, my kids. I was, it was so hard to cut your daughter. And so I'm excited that I think there's going to be a ton of students that are able to connect with it. And I think there's going to be a lot of parents that say, wow, I can see my kid overthinking. What do I do with that? And, and we were volunteering at a swim meet because I'm a servant leader. I give and I, I just can't stop giving. And um, this girl got out of the pool and she said to her mom, I'm the slowest swimmer ever. I'll never get better. And my wife and I looked at each other and said, oh, those are just broken soundtracks. In fact, any listener, if you've got teenagers, look for the absolutes. If you hear your kids say, I'll never be good at geometry. I'm the only one who didn't get invited to the prom. I'm the only one who doesn't have a certain type of phone. There's probably a broken soundtrack there and you can actually work on that. And that's what I'm excited about is parents having a chance to help their kids come up with a new playlist. John, have you created a course around it or some kind of uh, workbook or module that helps maybe educators or parents bring the concepts to life in the book further? We're doing a, vi we're doing a video series about it, um, which I think is going to be a lot of fun. My, my daughters and I are doing the audiobook together, which I think is a, a really yeah. fun experience for them to be in a studio. Um, I'm, I'm sure that you've, you've done that before. It's always funny to see the words that you don't know you don't really say well. I had to change rural road to country road yep. in a book once because the yep. audio engineer was like, dude, it's not, it's not happening. Yep. This ain't happening for you, buddy. It's, you, you don't know how to say that phrase. Um, so, yeah, we'll have a video series around it. And people can get the, um, the first two chapters if parents are interested at acup.me slash playlist. John, other than that book, what's next on the horizon for you and all that is in the ACUF world? Yeah, so I've got a new book due in August. Um, that, it's a book about potential that I'm excited about. We did the researcher, this guy, Mike Peasley, who's a PhD professor um, at MTSU. We asked 3,000 people if they feel like they're living up to their potential. And the reason we did a survey that size is when you read most articles online that are like 50% of Republicans, 50% of Democrats, if you read the article, they asked 11 people and four of them were named Larry. So we did this huge study and 96% of people feel like they're not living up to their full potential. And so the next book's about potential. I'm working on that. And then um, continuing to enjoy the podcast and then hopefully going to work on a new two book deal and, and just keep going. My goal, one of my goals this year is to do a thousand hours crafting ideas. Um, if I do that, the rest of all of my business takes care of itself. Like, so that for me, so I know I've got um, 290 deep right now. I've got some hours to kind of keep adding up, but I'm really enjoying being deliberate about long range goals, not just short ones. New York Times best-selling author John Acuff. The book today we talked about was Soundtracks, The Surprising Solution to Overthinking. John Acuff, thanks for your friendship. Thanks for your time today. Look forward to writing a great chapter about our conversation in Master Mentors, Volume 3. And we will have you back here if you'll come when your next book 100%. comes out in the fall. A hundred percent. Thank you so much, Scott. Thanks, John. Thank you all. We'll see you next week for a new conversation on leadership. Mm -hmm.